It's Thursday. I always forget that we have some music. It either works or it doesn't work. And damn it. All right, let's try this again. Sorry, so, <laughs> that's all good. Uh, Thursday night, uh, we got a new brand new episode of Jonesy for Jessica. Uh, episode 5, a.k.a. The Sandwich Saved Me. For those who don't know, uh, I'm Brett and about to uh, welcome my co-host, Alana, uh, your normal uh, folks for Graphic Policy Radio. And uh, we are going episode by episode through uh, Jessica Jones, Marvel, and Netflix's latest live action series. Um, I'm going to uh, introduce the guests. First off, um, actually, Alana is here. So let's first introduce Alana. Hey, how you doing? Uh, Alana? Yes. Okay, great. I know we were just having some technical issues. Hi, how you doing? I'm here. Uh, Good. (laughs) So why don't you tell us what we have on tap for tonight's episode? Sure. So for everyone, just so you know, our podcast, we avoid spoilers for future episodes. Um... So we'll be discussing, you know, episodes one, two, three, four, five, but especially episode five, primarily episode five. Um, but we are safe to listen to if you have not listened, watched the show beyond this. I have not. I've only watched through episode five. That's how I keep it easy for myself. And um, we have two guests joining us tonight. Uh, Brett, do you want to do the introductions? Yeah. So we've got two guests. Uh, first is uh, Logan where are names? Here we go, names. Uh, Logan Dalton uh, is a nerdy bisexual ginger who recently graduated university with a degree in English literature and over-analyzing comic books, which is going to make a lot of fun uh, here. Uh, he is the comics editor for Canadian pop culture site Pop Optic uh, and writes about them for the Rainbow Hub. His favorite superhero is Kitty Pride, and his favorite current comic is The Wicked Divide. All good things. Um, we support this a lot. He also is currently writing about Jessica Jones in his weekly column, Investigating Alias, an issue-by-issue look at the original comic book in which she appeared. So he's going to have some awesome insight on the character and the comic series. And then we've got Janine uh, Fleury. Um, she holds a BA in Film Studies and Creative Writing from Sarah Lawrence College and an MA in Media Studies from the New School. Uh, in addition to a day job that util- utilizes neither of these degrees. Welcome to the club, so same with me. Um, she's a co-founder and event host for the Green Mountain Gore Society, a cult horror and B-movie appreciation community in Burlington, Vermont. Welcome, Logan and Janine. How you doing? Yeah. Good. Ready to talk about my, like, probably third favorite superhero, probably? Yeah. <laughs> oh. I don't know. Uh, I haven't got an official ranking in a while. <laughs> so we gotta we start off the episode just to kind of know where everyone's footing is. I mean, in the introduction, Logan, and clearly you've read the comic. How much of the series have you watched so far? Um, okay, I may have binge watched the entire. Okay, so I watched the first ten episodes. Okay, so first of all, I was at New York Comic. I don't want to brag, but I was at New York Comic Con at the <laughs> panel, and me and my friend Julia, who's like probably the biggest Jessica Jones fan on the planet who is in full jewel cosplay. Um, we got to see the pilot episode like a month before everyone else, over like a month before everyone else. So I had that one episode in my like mind for months. 
And then, yeah, then I watched the first ten episodes in a day, and then I watched the final three episodes on another day because I kind of was going to do a podcast on Monday about the whole show. So I kind of had to bring it down. <laughs> but I, I, I was surprised. Like, it's such an you know, intense psychological show, and just so it deals with things like abuse and rape and just really kind of sad things. And somehow, I don't know how I like, made it through so quickly, but I don't know. I just I love the character so much, and... She's so different from any other, you know, Marvel heroes. So, um, yeah, that's that's. I watched this show. It was a while ago, yeah, and I didn't watch any of the episodes again until uh, episode five for the podcast. So, yeah, it's been a while. What about mm-hmm. you, Janine? I this was my introduction to Jessica Jones. I have not read any of the comics, so I only know what we've seen on the show. And I did binge watch the entire series. Um, it was a little bit of a slow burn for me at first, but I really got into it once I got into it. Um, I, I really find something innately lovable about Kristen Ritter. Um, so that she was a big draw for me. Um, so yeah, I, I am kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum in that I am very new to Jessica Jones. All right. So we got a little bit of everything here. That's, that's cool. Um, so yeah, I mean, just kind of opening up with the, the fifth episode is an interesting one. Um, let me kind of read the description for it. Uh, so it's uh, called AKA the sandwich saved me, which is a important scene in the series. And uh, the description is despite Jessica's objections, uh, Trisha's new friend Simpson gets involved in the hunt for Kilgrave, And Jessica recalls a pivotal moment in her life, which is the key of the sandwich saved me. Um, so yeah. And, uh, ah, actually, I think a different scene is the key as well, but we'll get oh, to that okay. later. Continue. Sure. Mm-hmm. So the series, like, this is one where we really start kind of seeing a backstory for Jessica um, with a lot of references for, for folks who know the comic series. Um, they don't outright say things, but there's, you know, teasing of, of costumes and, um, you know, it's kind of sometime done as a superhero. Um, so what what'd you all think of that? Because this is kind of more the, the like, as... I think almost the most comic booky we've seen the series at this point. Mm-hmm. I'm such a huge fan of the opening scene with uh, Trish and Jess, like pre-Kilgrave, just enjoying life and um, making sexist men look stupid and just, you know, chatting like girlfriends over drinks. Cause it reminded me a lot of a scene from the first arc of Alias where um, Jessica and Carol Danvers, who, uh, it's Captain Marvel now, like big big time hero is gonna get her a movie. Um, it reminded me of their like friendly chats they had, and I'm just like, yay, happy Jessica. And then yeah, it was a nice like moment of release before we get into this like dark addiction drama, and we have to deal with this like sociopathic like war veteran who's like super mysterious, and yeah. <laughs> well, I would definitely say though that, and this is something I appreciate about the scene that. You know, seeing Jess before Kilgrave and, like, seeing her with her humor and all that, it's important to me that it's still dark humor and that she's still sarcastic and she's still – it's not like she went from being, like, sunshines and rainbows to being dark. Like, there's always mm-hmm. been this sort of attitude within her. So it's not that, you know, she is a survivor of a trauma that has been very definitive in her life, but it is not like it rewrote her entire personality she's still the same person. Like I was really happy to see this glimpse into her pre-Kilgrave to see 
Like, she looks a lot healthier and happier, but she doesn't look like a space alien. It's not like she's acting like she's in a different role. It's not like, you know, the body snatchers or anything. She's still the same person, just a more damaged version of it. Um, but she still has the same dark humor and sarcasm. And in that, in that scene where she's working in the office, and you can, you can tell she's not somebody that likes to be told what to do or to be working for someone else, which kind of heightens the understanding of what it must have been like for her to be under someone else's control like Kilgrave, you know? It's mm. a great point, yeah. That scene really reminded me of Office Space. Um, but I kind <laughs> of... I don't really watch a lot of movies that take place in cubicle farms. Perhaps they all look like that. I don't know. I only, I really don't know. But it seemed <laughs> like a very office spacey kind of a visual reference. Uh, the thing I actually thought that in movies, they all seem to be like that. The thing that I actually thought was really interesting is as she was storming out of the office, uh, when she got fired or quit or however you want to call it, she says, can I put day drinking down on my resume? And they go out drinking, which to me indicates that there might be, there might have been some drinking issues before Kilgrave. Uh, like, going up to this, he kind of assumes some of the drinking has to do with, like, due to Kilgrave. But here we get a glimpse that mm-hmm. maybe that's not the case. Yeah. I mean, I think definitely think I she drinks think more. I mean, uh, like, yeah. I don't know, like, seeing it again, I, like, every interior shot, there's, like, at least four or five whiskey bottles. And, mm-hmm. I don't know, it also, it also works, like, oh, man, never mind, this is a spoiler. But also kind of a nice parallel between Malcolm and his substance abuse issues and, and maybe they'll explore it later in this show. Definitely. Uh, nice dance. <laughs> well played. Yeah. It may be I mean, that, I you know, that we've seen some of that too. More like, more like fun drinking, you know, more of, more of a fun spirit to it. And it was more of a like carefree proclivity to drink during the day. Whereas now it's more of a like healing her wounds drink during the day. Right. You yeah. know? That's a good point. You know, my other thing with the the bar scene is it shows you that standing up to bullies is, like, one of her interests and always has been, like, showing yeah. up bullies. Like, she could have totally just told the guy, like, fuck off and ignored him. She actually instead made a big production about, like, telling him to go fuck himself rather than just, you know, being discreet about it. So, like, she enjoys standing up to bullies, which I think is, like, we see that in a number of ways within this episode. You know, when she rescues Malcolm later... Um, her interaction with with uh, the middle management douchebag and, and the office, like there's a lot of her standing up to bullies as an interest. I also just was like watching like the, the bar guy. I kept wondering like who does he think his approach is going to work on? I don't really know if telling people how you used to beat off to them as a child is a really good opening line oh, for any God. potential like hookup. Yeah, he didn't seem drunk enough to really be selling that as a logical choice for a pickup line. <laughs> I'm going yeah, with. But you're not very good at this. I'm going with <laughs> banker douchebag pickup line. Yeah. Uh, plus, it's yeah. Creepy I just don't know how that works. Like, she was a kid, which makes it even creepier. Yeah, yeah. It's oh and, my god, he just needs to be stopped. Yeah. The bar was pretty accurate. Like you know, I haven't seen a strength tester in a New York City bar. I well, don't think I've seen a love tester either. The strength, well, the strength tester, tester I know had, used to be like every bar I was drinking at, and it seems to bring out jackasses. Like I will cop to being one of those jackasses around those things, <laughs> drinking too much and trying to show off strength. And been nights where a friend might have fractured his hand punching one of those things too much. 
Um, wow. Where, where, wow. With DC, like that's all we do is drink down here. Uh, at least we're used to. It in but the I 20s. haven't seen those. <laughs> I have not. I, I have. I have seen those in my travels, but I do not recall seeing those in New York or DC where I've been. Like I don't know. Sorry, this is a weird, of a weird no, track. No. We have a very <laughs> multi-city crowd of people, actually. Um, so I don't know if you guys can speak to the presence or absence of Love Chesters whence you come from, but. Um, oh, I know what I saw. Love Chester. At some really, I've only seen them at like sketchy like travel plaza bathrooms, like on the way from like. Because yeah. I don't know, I like visit relatives in Tennessee a lot. Like some like driven like all in the south, and the yeah, I've seen those love testers and like put your hand here and you can like probably like, really skeevy like truck stop bathrooms, like <laughs> usually underneath the below the condoms dispensers. No, no ground round. Anybody remember that? I love like they were open. with the popcorn. Yeah, yeah, and the, I think a clown maybe, and a lot, and I swear a love. Maybe I'm making that up. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So I mean I don't know, but it, it works as a good showpiece, like for both of those characters. It also I, I maybe with what with, with uh, bar guy trying to sing the Patsy theme song. I think this is like the third time somebody has tried to sing the Patsy theme song at Trish, and Trish has less than zero interest. She, like, wants nothing to do with anybody referencing her old show. And I really am curious to hear if there actually is, don't answer this question, just throwing this out. It'd be interesting to see if we ever do get to, like, hear the actual Patsy Walker <laughs> show, like, theme song, like, actually sung by someone who, who knows the melody at some point in the series. Again, don't answer that, but, I have, no. but I'm really curious. I will say funny you know, I've watched it, the whole thing. I couldn't answer the question. Even if I wanted to, I couldn't answer the question. I don't remember. Oh. Well, that's disappointing. <laughs> it might have been uh, I'm not going to answer um, the question, but uh, yeah. I really think they should. Like, I think, I think Bojack Horseman did, like, an episode of his, like, in-universe show. I think they should do, yes. like, an episode of It's Patsy. Like, oh, as God. a special. Like, find some <sighs> child who they can... Yeah, that would be hard to watch, you know, I imagine, knowing how miserable she is thinking about yeah. it and all that. I mean, yeah, it'll be really dark. Just like the the like Bojack Horseman's a really dark show too that deals with like addiction yes. and stuff. So it'll be kind so of good. like watching it. it. Like it looks all like TGIF, but it's really like darker than the show itself. Yeah. Yeah. Is also the the fact that Jess actually puts a blowjob on the table as a like in her you know baiting these assholes bet like that felt really like dark and uncomfortable because like she could have totally done the whole exact same bet without putting sexual favors on the table, but she chose to because she's just like, she's like, she's like finding like the worst in people. Do you know what I mean? Like she, that was like a choice to go there. She could have put it like, and if I lose, I buy everyone drinks. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't have to go there, but it went there. (laughs) I, I fully expected it to be drinks. I was with you, like when the when the first time I watched this, I fully expected it to be like if if I uh, lose, I have to buy everyone around, or I I pick up your entire tab for like the right. day, which like something which, yeah, like we that. We know she can't do, and so it still makes the point. So I think the fact that it still came back to like a sex thing is like kind of like a dark character point, you know, that I appreciate and take as a as a, uh, and I take that as a character note rather than just like a, well, of course she said it kind of a thing. Um, and then we cut from that scene to there's Kilgrave, there's before Kilgrave, and then there's after Kilgrave. Like, 
which is a pretty dramatic voiceover line to cut from. But she's actually saying that while looking at the pictures of Malcolm, you know, and looking at who he was before his encounter with Kilgrave and then after. Malcolm is a character that I really began to love in this episode. Like, early on, like, I mean, the character that Malcolm is in the, the comic is this just annoying kid that just runs around uh, just his office and makes, like, lewd comments about it and, like, answers the phone once because um, he, like, kind of wants to be your intern because he's, like, an edgy superhero. It's just, it's really weird. Hmm. But, like, Malcolm in the show, like, even, like, later on he even gets better. But, like, early on, like, especially this episode, I'm like, okay, whoa, he's getting a full arc. And he uh, has this, already has this connection with Jessica. And, like, and also he even got a little bit of a backstory. We got to find out, like, he wanted to help people as, like, a social worker. And mm-hmm. I, I'm, like, really happy that he went from being, like, kind of like a one-note junkie stereotype to, like, three-dimensional character, especially in this episode. It's kind of like totally. a subtle showcase for him. Totally. It would be very easy for him to just be like a stereotype. And here, you know, his story is like so important throughout this episode. Um, I mean, the, that, the sequence in the end, which we'll get to, I think, especially. I, one point that I noticed is um, when she goes to follow him, that Jess is wearing a white jacket as a disguise because that's, you know, how she's going to be less noticeable which only makes sense because she always wears a black jacket. Because normally, if you were telling somebody to go follow someone, you probably would not tell them to wear a white jacket. <laughs> I can't say I picked um, up on that, so that's a hell of an observation. <laughs> I didn't even yeah. think of that. I was just like, I just oh, thought, she, oh, she just wants laughing. to be comfortable. Or yeah. yeah. Well, Alon has always had an eye to Oh, that's true. That's true. And then the, the next time she follows him, she's wearing gray. And then she goes back to black. So she's, I guess, I don't know what that means. Like, I feel like it's deliberate. I'm not exactly sure. But I just do think, like, yeah, if Jessica goes undercover, really goes undercover, then that means she wears white. <laughs> um, uh, the focus pull that the camera does when she sees Kilgrave in Union Square Park, which is, by the way, totally Union Square Park, um, it just is so, like, dramatic and dizzying. I, I have, like, vertigo, so for me, watching that, it totally, like, set off my head, and I was like, whoa. Uh, I really felt it. I imagine people who don't have weird inner ear problems probably also had a reaction, but it was a very, like, heavy camera move that the show hasn't done a lot of, and that focus pull was just really striking. Like, you know, she sees Kilgrave, and then it just pulls back, and then she flips around, the world behind her is sort of like blurry and she does her mantra of trying to remember her identity that her shrink gave her, et cetera. It was a pretty striking sequence. I thought, any thoughts you guys? Yeah. I mean, Jessica Jones is actually a pretty, when it wants to be, it can be a pretty stylish show. Like, mm. uh, like, and I know we're probably going to talk this later, but like the ending of the episode, like the pillars were, were purple in the background and, I mean, especially the pilot's incredibly stylish, like most pilots are. But yeah, it'll mm-hmm. it'll do like it'll use a, like slow, a little bit of slow mo, or like a weird, you know, kind of like Dutch angle going. But it does it like just at the right time, so you like know to pay attention to the scene. Because um, the rest is just like, oh, New York, yay! And it doesn't have like the fancy choreography of like Daredevil, um, which Daredevil mm-hmm. is like very like because okay. I mean the comic Daredevil is based on like Frank Miller and. Uh, Bendis and Malyev, like those those comics are very just pulpy dialogue, really stylized art. Um, 
Mm-hmm. Jessica Jones is more like the way she's drawn by Michael Gatto. She like I was looking like the other day I was writing. She is like she looks like an actual like person. Like she like her when mm-hmm. she's like, wearing her shirt, it's like she has a little. I mean, she's like really fit because she's a superhero, but she has like a little like role and like her clothes fit like a normal person. And I think they are trying to capture that in the show, but like adding some like kind of noirish touch touches, especially with like the the score, which wasn't as as much in this episode. So it was just trying That's to like, feel dramatic at the end. Yeah. Mhm. I agree with everything you said. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just wanted to that commentary. <laughs> but it's really true, yeah, with this, you can see that. And I also like the scene, I mean, the scene, we're looking at Jessica. She's looking at Kilgrave. Kilgrave is looking at Jessica photos. And it's all just sort of like cutting between these people's gazes, and it has such a thick, paranoid feeling. It very much follows, you know, the Hitchcockian vibe we were talking about from the last episode, um, which seems to sort of be a continuing theme now in the show. It's a lot of it is about people watching people and people following people and people like. Yeah, I mean the first shot it's is her taking pictures of mm-hmm. people. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, and it's interesting. Like Kilgrave is choosing to sit in a park and look at photos of Jessica. Now we know by this point, in retrospect, that he he knows he's being followed and being watched, but. This has been something that we think he's been doing since before that, which means that even when Kilgrave isn't performing being creepy to Jessica, he still is a guy who goes and sits in a park and looks at photos of Jessica. That's fucking disturbing. <laughs> like, I mean, even though the little is way, like, the whole coffee pouring, like, scary, like, even, like, Every action he does just scares me. He, uh, like, yeah. yeah. The the coffee thing was hard, and um, just like a good reminder of like exactly what's at stake with him. Yeah, because he's I always think... you know controlling people. He doesn't like take a break to like do non-villain <laughs> things. Except for sleep. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Well, I really, I don't know if you guys have, I, I can't remember if you guys have touched on this before, but I really like how they kind of take a very subtle approach to her powers. Like when she, um, you know, like when she lands from a jump or something, she just kind of takes like a hard squat or like, I feel like they kind of do the same, like the coffee thing was kind of the same. Like he's a very subtle, like put the coffee in your face, bloop. You know, it's not like a big showy, like I'm a mad villain moment. It's just kind of like, mm, do this, mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Same kind of like I, I don't know if understated is the right word, but there's there's just something about both the heroics and the villainy that I think are are at a really I, I want to say kind of realistic level. You know what I mean? Like if these were things that existed mm-hmm. in our universe, like that's kind of, that is how I would expect them to play out. Yeah, I mean the first. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna say the first half of Jessica Jones is like this is how you do superhero realism. Like mm-hmm. everyone like says, oh Christopher Nolan's Batman is superhero realism. I'm like, did you guys see the Dark Knight Rises with the flying tanks? Like, no, this is I mean how you do it because it's not just like, oh well she doesn't have that much power. It's like psychological realism. Like these people act 
like, real people, and, like, the climactic events aren't, like, big climaxes. It's her helping her, you know, neighbor, um, rescuing her neighbor um, mm-hmm. from being a junkie. It reminded me a lot of, Jessica Jones weirdly reminds me a lot of M. Night Shyamalan Unbreakable um, and how it treats super, superpowers, because, I mean, you don't even know if Bruce Willis is actually unbreakable for most of the movie. And at the end, it, he doesn't, like, you know, fight some big, have some big supervillain fight. He just saves the kid from a building. And it kind of, yeah, like, just that kind of understated approach that, like, a lot of, you know, like, the, the big Marvel, like, cinematic universe movies are all about the big effects in the third act and, the you know, putting the thing in the portal and, like, oh, let's show we have <laughs> Disney money. But um, <laughs> Jessica, I like that Jessica Jones is wiser and chooses, chooses like, little relatable human moments for their, like, climaxes instead of, you know, oh, yeah, because, I mean, I've seen, like, everyone's seen millions of explosions and aliens getting punched, so it's nice, you know, just to actually kind of focus on the human side for one. Yeah. That's a good point. The cut, then, is to the next scene where we see a close-up of uh, of Trish Walker um, in bed. I immediately knew that she was getting head. I was like, that was <laughs> And I will say, as much as scene. douche cop, as much as douche cop is douche cop and awful, like the one positive <laughs> thing I can say for him is at least he's moderately good in bed. <laughs> we 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 have, you know, I don't I don't think that I don't think Trish was acting, so we can say, a douche cop. He is a mansplainer and a sexist and creepy. Oh my god! And whatever it is in the future, but he is moderately good in bed. So <laughs> look out. Awesome moments in this episode, though, of like, you know what, pretty boy, you're best seen and not heard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, those are two moments that one in this scene where Trish, like, flat out is like, last night was fun, but I don't need your opinion. And then, oh, and okay. that might be one of the best lines of the series. And like, then a little later, there's in. another great moment. Oh, sorry, say that. Yeah, again. it was great. Uh, the whole, like, I don't need your opinion. It's, like, one of the top ten lines. I forget. I was reading an article. I think it was in the Mary Sue about how, like, uh, Simpson is being treated as, like, a stereotypical female character in that scene. Yeah. Like, he gets yeah. he gets the, you know, he's basically naked. He doesn't, like, he doesn't get involved in the plan. He's just there to be, like, shirtless or whatever. Yep. <laughs> like, the most, like, stereotypical. <laughs> yeah. Like, ooh, this is, this is an interesting inversion. Like, he's also mansplaining the whole time. Like, I think if he approached oh, yeah, things yeah, like and he wasn't whole, such a like, dick about it, people would react differently, you know? Like, if he was, like, a little bit more humble and a lot less mansplaining, like, people might not think he's douche cop. So, that's, Yeah, he uses you know, so much, like, it. military jargon just to sound cool. Like, it reminds me of, like, reminds me of guys, like, any subject, like, who you're just, like, throwing out, like, words of Latin derivatives to look cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love that that's a thing that guys do to look cool to you. That makes me very happy. Um, and like yeah, that exactly. Trish is like, like, we don't need you, but we could use him. You know what I mean? Like she, she does not, <laughs> doesn't undercut Jessica because she's getting with this guy. You know what I mean? She's like, no, this is between me and Jess. And you're at our disposal if we want to use you. And, you know, like maybe Jess, he's an asset, so we should consider it. But it's definitely like he's usable, but not necessary. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the whole like, one, okay, Trisha's neck is healed. Two, Jess does not have a driver's license still. 
Jess's parents died in a car crash. Pretty sure oh. these things are connected. Now, I don't have a car with systems either, and my parents did not get killed in a car crash, but I still, um, knocking on wood, but uh, I still feel like that's probably significant. But she lives in New York, for Christ's sake. Like, that's why I don't have Yeah, that's what I thought at first. Like, second time, I'm like, oh, I like... I know, like, I remembered, oh, yeah, it died in a crash. But, like, first time, I'm like, oh, it's just a New York thing. She's just, like, you know, why, like, mm. Peter Parker doesn't have, like, drive anywhere. Because he, he was he's mm. a kid from Queens. And, uh, like, yeah, and she's, like, I mean, the comic she lives in Forest, was from Forest Hills. So it's a little different. The thing show, is, though, so, like, people yeah. have cars in Forest Hills, but not, like, everybody. Like, par- parking out there is, like, a shit show, but there is parking. It's sort of, like, Forest Hills is a park. Wes Thompson would have like, a car. Well, yeah, but like it's a part of it's a part of Queens, which is like semi car, semi not car. Whereas there's other parts of Queens uh-huh. that are totally car, and other parts that are totally just like subway. So yeah, um, it's interesting yeah, though because if, if, if she in fact does not have, you know, if that's the reason she didn't get her license, you know, then that adds to the fact that this is, and even even if that's not the reason she doesn't have a license. She lost her parents when she was young, and that is also a traumatic event. So, you know, a lot of, of the focus of her as a, a character carrying a lot of trauma comes from Kilgrave and that kind of, of violation. But this bringing that up is the first time I really stopped and realized, like, no, this is a character that was already carrying trauma. Mm, totally. totally. The whole, and, that, and that's what I really like about the show is that, you know, I think a lot of people consider post-traumatic stress to to be something that, uh, you know, sexual assault survivors have or people who have gone to war have. But there is an entire spectrum of of trauma out there <laughs> that a lot yeah. of people have experienced in some way or other. And so, you know, it it it's very it just makes her very accessible, you know. Yeah, and definitely. Like, back to the fact that like oh yeah this is also like even if Kilgrave were never a thing and she didn't go as dark as she did as a result of that like maybe that's why she was a daytime drinker and and already sarcastic and like didn't give a fuck about having a decent day job and would rather like blackmail someone and knock over all their office furniture <laughs> than like put her nose to the grindstone you know like she was already yeah. carrying it yeah yeah Oh, gosh. Um, so the holding rooms that they go to are in Industry City in Brooklyn. We were like, we know where that is. We know where that is when we were watching that episode. Um, I should probably lead a Jessica Jones tour of New York City after the, oh I finish gosh. watching the series. Sign me up. I will yeah. bring my uh, – I will – me and my squad will show up a day – and my uh, Dirty South squad will show up a day before New York Comic Con <laughs> and go on the tour. I would. That would be awesome. Actually, oh my God! So I found it. One of my coworkers was born and raised, and his mom still lives. Like the the fire escape that's across the street from Luke's bar, where she takes all those photos. Like that's where he's from. Oh ah. my gosh! It's amazing. Yeah, I wrote down the address. Uh, about exactly what it was, but it's in the East Village. Luke's bar also is Bar Seven B, which I've been to, which explains why it was familiar. Um, oh, but yeah, and there too. That's the East Village. Have you been there, Janine, to see 7B? You've probably been there. Yeah, yeah, I have. Long time ago, but I remember that. I remember that. Crazy. Name. Oh, right. No, you should do that, dude. You should absolutely do that. It would be a very fruitful <laughs> endeavor. Oh, I love, I love how in the car on the way to, um, 
when they get to Industry City, she's like debating with Douche Cop about like how he doesn't understand what's going on, how, what he, how he doesn't really know what this is about. And she gets, she gets him down to a point where he's like, you're right, I don't know. And he looks genuine when he says it. But then the gears turn because he can't help himself and he says, no, no, I know, I do know one thing. And then the camera cuts, that scene's over. Because it's like, even if he like has a moment of recognizing that he doesn't have to know everything all the time, he can't make himself stop. He just can't make himself stop. Uh, he's so judgmental of Jessica. Like he's like, oh well, he's she's definitely someone that no one would want to date. And like, uh, he just he can't just he just needs to shut up and like do his soldier thing. Not yeah. He needs. He I mean, needs I to, love, like, yeah. Take, yeah, he needs to be like Riley Finn from Buffy and just be a soldier <laughs> slash man, Candy, and do nothing oh, else. God, Riley's terrible. He's like not even. I know he is he needs to stop. Oh God. Okay. Well. I really do enjoy when they're both when, when she and Douchecap are on either sides of the uh, the plastic barrier or whatever, and they can't hear each other, and they're saying what they really think. I mean, the scene is like that scene is like you could say like yeah, that's kind of heavy-handed, but it's also it just is such a nice little short version of how they feel about each other. You know, she says, "You GI Joe, you have a screw loose. I'm guessing you left the military because you gunned down a small village." And then he's saying to her from his side, you think because you you have abilities, you're a hero. You aren't a hero. I know real heroes. And so then they end with each doing very fake performed smiles and thumbs up at each other. It was a great little sequence. That was that was the second moment of, you know what, dude, shut up and let's just look at you that I really appreciated where she just slams the door on him. <laughs> It's like again. Oh <laughs> yeah, when I when I first yeah. saw the episode, I'm like, oh man, maybe we should just leave it in here, and they can just Jessica Jones and and a uh, Hellcat team. Yeah, it's like the that them having that set establishing that like safe room and location and stuff like that though definitely was one of the things that made me think, oh, this plan maybe could work. Like I know it can't actually work because it's episode five. But the fact that they have somewhere to put him once they've got him was one of those, like, okay, maybe this could work or something. The only reason that it can't is that I know that it's episode five. (laughs) Um, And then we cut to the sandwich scene. And I just want to say the sandwich, well, one, like her in the sandwich costume calling for people to buy the sandwich. She's so miserable, it hurts. And she proves that she's a hero by stopping the car, right? But the thing is, Stopping a car is incredibly easy for her. It's like nothing, right? So what I think is noteworthy is that Jess was paying enough attention to a little girl to notice that the girl was about to get hit and then stop the car, you know? If you're, like, invulnerable, like, you can just step in front of a car and stop it. But Jess pays attention to little people, so she noticed that the little girl had wandered into the street and stopped the car. But that's what I take. So I I take took that as the, it just shows that she's very uh, observant, which is why she's so good as a PI. The mm. major thing PIs do, like my my brother did that yeah. for a living, so I'm like well oh. aware of what the actual world of private investigation is. It's a lot of. You're only mentioning this now, watching. Brett. Uh, I think oh my I'm gosh! Just, I, I, need, just, I need like what do real PIs do? Yeah, so he did it. So he worked for a firm. Um, the his former boss like was on the Mississippi burning case with the FBI. Like, so this was Damn. like a real PIPI. Yeah, um, it was a lot of like 
watching people. So he had his camouflage outfit so he could like sit in a field with a camera and just film someone. Uh, he actually had to, you know, you'd have to follow people in a car uh, to to watch them around. Um, it's a lot of things like uh, it's just it's really boring. So a great like a case that he was on was there was a guy who uh, I think it was he went and got like hit by a car. The car said that the guy just like walked wandered in, and I think the guy was like mentally um, I forgot what it was his issue was. There, he was off somehow. Um, and like the other person was like, no, the car like just hit him and didn't pay attention to him. And my brother just followed the guy and like got him on video of him wandering into streets doing jumping jacks. So clearly like it was, you know, his fault and that this guy is a complete idiot and does these sort of things. So it wasn't probably the driver's fault. Uh, but like, that's all it was like, it's the most boring. Like when she's sitting around just watching people snapping photos that's about as exciting as a real PI life is, at least huh. what I know of it. It's very boring. So they're <laughs> actually depicting it pretty well. And it's a lot, you know, it's a lot of research and going in and getting documents and stuff like that. But uh, it's mostly like following people and videotaping them, which is really creepy. <laughs> well, there's some good, I mean, source material because uh, Brian Michael Bendis, who wrote Alias, um, was a. Uh, cartoonist, staff cartoonist for the Cleveland Plain Dealer, and yep. he had friends who were crime reporters. And, like, his first ever comic he did was about, uh, oh, what's his name, Elliot Ness catching a serial killer in Cleveland yep. before he went to Chicago and became untouchable. Torso, so he, yeah. It's very good. He, like, is great with crime stuff. Like, once you go to outer space, not so much, but, like, crime stuff, um, <laughs> any kind of journalism, that is, like, like, that's like my Bendis, you know, comfort food, and that's what Alias is. I agree. What, you know, this is kind of drawing on. Yeah. Yeah, and just as yeah. a side, I think Bendis' his indie work is far, far better than his mainstream work. Like he, and Alias and is pretty much sort of like it's like ish in between. Even though, like, the, yeah. the one thing I don't like about Alias is there's so many like awkward like Marvel references, which is one thing that Jessica Jones does well. It like there's barely any Easter eggs compared to other things. And I like mm. that. It's just focusing on the story. I mean, there mm. are a few, there's the kid as Captain America, there's Jewel, but like in this episode, but it's mostly just her, her story, you know, who needs the you know, extra connected tissue or whatever, you know, who needs like Matt Murdock just dropping in for no reason, like whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I really, by the, I loved Bendis's Daredevil series. That was like one of the first things I picked up in floppies ever. Well, I mean, as an adult, or not really an adult, as a college student, whatever. It was a big deal that I picked it up. But, um, but yeah, he's like he's much better working in this world than he is in like his space stuff, which is just not quite there. <laughs> um, yeah. So, oh, okay. So, do anybody have any thoughts about why she's in a sandwich costume? Like, particularly, I don't know. It's supposed to be like a cell phone costume, maybe. I took it, it was a job. Like she was handing out. I mean, it is pamphlets. Yes, well, like, yeah, I, was, I took it. But, it, but she, it's, it's an artistic choice that it would be a sandwich and not um, a cell phone. I don't know what else I've seen people dressed up as handing things out, but I think I see a lot of people okay, with cell phones. Might be a stretch, but she gives a sandwich to Malcolm, and it, this is like step on his road to recovery. <gasps> so yeah, it's like it's her like heroic identity, and also it's like. Ha ha! Superhero costumes suck, kind of thing. 
which oh, is her oh, attitude. Oh, my God. Which... Well, I think it's intentional. Yes, because of the sandwich. Mm. Oh, my God. I totally believe this now. The peanut butter sandwich. She's dressed with a sandwich. And, you know, and, and I thought, you know, Chris also jokes like you can't keep on saving people just with a sandwich. But I'm like, I mean, she could because the jewel costume is redonkulous. I but love yeah, it. Right. The sandwich is a I love the jewel costume. Later. You do? Did it, did it strike any of don't. you guys weird that her criticism of it was like Jewel is a slutty stripper's name? Did that seem kind of like an out of character almost? It just seems like a, a, a bizarre criticism. I mean, me. I would like to think Jessica Jones wouldn't like say something that was, you know, bad about strippers, but realistically, like, yeah, yeah. I could see her saying that. I could see her saying that's something that. That's something that she should, definitely, jarring, she should definitely say after a few drinks, definitely. I mean, she's she's no one, yeah. she's not a role model. Sorry, guys, she's not a role model. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's, I think, yeah, I know what you mean, it was sort of jarring to her for that, but it was also like, yeah, she'd say that. Um, okay. Are we at the, super, are we at the, are we at the scene yet? Not quite. We're going to get there, and then we're going to talk about that. But real quick, um, that's the car. She was a sandwich. I think that's good. <laughs> uh, oh, yes. Yeah. So her, she, you know, she runs into her neighbor in the hallway with the other creepy neighbor, Jordan or whatever. Oh Jordan Ruben, wants to take uh, I hate that guy. Ruben, sorry, wants to take him to um, the hospital, and she's like, he's safer at home, which is, like, actually a really enabling thing for her to say. That is also kind of necessary for her plan, right? Yeah. She does not like the system. And she just like, uh, yeah, I mean, she's been playing the system since, you know, she snuck into the hospital. And she, yeah, doesn't like the police. And she just, like, does her own cool freelance thing. And, yeah, but hmm. it can bite her a lot because she doesn't have much support. I mean, That's true. And then we have Trish and Douche wearing sunglasses, having an awkward conversation between the two of them. When he talks about Googling Trish, it comes off really creepy, don't you think? Mm. I mean, it's realistic. If I was dating somebody who I thought had a Google entry about themselves, I'd Google them. Um, but it still comes off as creepy, don't you think? But I think the Wikipedia was like uh, him trying to be funny, but like, yeah, Googling is like... Oh, is like, is he like? Oh, is this another guy who likes me because I'm famous? Or, yeah. mm. and he really prized into Jess's powers. Then, like, he was trying to like find out more about them. And Trish is like, "No, that's private. You should ask her." Like, Trish is just great. This whole episode, her acting is great, yeah. and also just Trish being Trish is great. She was solid. And what I like in this, what I liked in that scene um, where she's talking to douche cop in the van is um, when she's questioning, you know, do you trust me? Do you trust that I'm a good person? Well, I know that Jess is a good person. And she says, I'm pretty sure you are too, which to me revealed, yeah, she likes this guy, but she's also not 100% sold yet. Mm-hmm. But she still sleeps with yeah. him. Which is mind. good because the yeah, but which is good because like how they're introduced. Like, I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like I like it's that she's not like, please be great head. I am one hundred percent behind you. You know what I mean? <laughs> she's still like, you sold me, but I'm still a little wary. I'm gonna say it politely, you know. Yeah, it's which is reasonable. Like her take on him, 
Like, given how long she's known him, which is not very long, like, you would not want her to say that she completely trusts him. That would be, yeah. you know, not... And it would be out of character, too. Idea. I mean, because this is someone who, like, one thing I really love about Trish in the show, like, from early on, is that she's, like, always prepared, and she, like, is trained in, like, self-defense, and just doesn't want anyone to control her life anymore. And Yeah, um, I'd say she's kind of like in terms of fighting skill, you know what I mean? Like Jess just has the upper hand because of her super strength, but you know, they're both, you know, the same level of adept, I think. And, you know, like, yeah. Yeah. You know. Every time she fights, I just wanted to throw in a Hellcat mask. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> every time. Oh, does anybody, the next scene we have, is with Hope in the hospital, is it with Hope in the Department of Corrections place? What the heck is going on with Hope? Do you guys have any theories that aren't spoilers? Because I have no idea. I guess you will find out in the next episode. Uh, she is in a spin-off show that is basically the Marvel Universe's Orange is the New Black. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, as soon as I realized that you guys had all seen the whole show, I realized that there's no point in me asking you what your theories are about what the hell that's about. <laughs> But I will just tell you guys, I have no idea what the hell that's about. Is she being bullied or extorted? I don't know. But I think right now, it's, and, uh, it's very good. Prison wife. Prison wife. Yeah. Aw. Yeah. So now we have the Jewel costume scene. I will just say, I don't think Jewel is a good code name. Especially, like, in the comics, Jewel is Jewel because all the good superhero names are taken. But, like, there's no reason for her to have such a blessed superhero name in the show. I think they should have come up with, like, a non-shitty super name for her, frankly. And, two, the outfit, like, you can't have a strapless, like, she's going to be wearing a long-line bra underneath that, which is barely comfortable enough to wear to a dance party, let alone to fight people. Like, <laughs> she needs personal to have a bra on. From personal yeah, experience. Totally. That, that costume is impractical to even walk in. Much less, yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. You I mean, did that, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, she, like, oh, my gosh. Because she had the heels and everything, the strapless and everything. And she had to, like, put, I had to, like, put on special tape to keep the costume on. <laughs> and, I I mean, I think from, uh, I don't know, from when, I don't know, Bendis and uh, Gatos were doing it, I think they were kind of showing, like, different eras and superheroes. And that was, like, because that was, like, kind of a 70s thing, like, you know, like Ms. Marvel had like it's like the bathing suit costume era. Like uh-huh. it was kind of like that. Yeah. Like, and then later she becomes Nitrous, which is like the '90s kind of BDSM, like quote unquote bad girl. Like when Image came in. Oh, I like, forgot about that. That's right, Janine. You probably don't yeah, know. I, I in the comics, the Nitrous costume. In the main, yeah, like in the comics, cool. guys. Like for people who don't know, in the comics, she is a superhero for a lot longer before this stuff happens in the comics. Like she has a real superhero career, mm-hmm. and she, she actually goes through two different iterations. I'm sorry, what she, was that? She, she wears the. She does do the jewel thing in the comics, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. She's she, a, she, she okay. flies around with purple her. hair in that costume. Yeah, because I did. I, I did do a little Wikipediaing, and one of the covers that they have is like her, like soaring in the jewel costume. And I remember being like, "What?" when I saw that thing, sir. I think with the the show, like it, that entire scene is all it is is just uh, service for the comic fans. Like that is the Easter egg, yeah. in, and that's it. Like it, 
it has no bearing on the series, and it was just that's all the entire scene was about was like, yes, she did the real superhero thing. Comic fans will really appreciate it, but really, it's got no bearing for on anything. Yeah, the two I mean, of us we, who we know. Yeah. <laughs> like we're happy. <laughs> I mean, like we know officially as of this episode that at no point does she actually really act as Jewel because what's his name? Because Kilgrave shows up in her life before she even has a chance to become a superhero, really, in the, in the course of the story. I'm sorry? I kind I of know miss sad, sad, though. Because, I mean, yeah. in, in, the, in the comments, like, Kilgrave, like, oh, it's, like, it's even worse. Like, they didn't handle, like, the show handled it much better in the comics. But at least she had, like, oh, there's a picture of me with Iron Man, the Avengers. At least had a, but she didn't even have, like, she just beat off two mothers. And it makes it so much more dark, so much darker. And, um, yeah, and she's, like, as far away from that, like, happy Avengers world, um, like, because, like, now, like, Jessica Jones is totally sold out. She's, like, I don't even, in the comics now, like, recently, she's, like, the Avengers, like, meh. Pretty much, like, the Avengers, like, mom. <laughs> it's, like, and she's occasionally says sarcastic stuff just to, like, this is still Jessica Jones, but, but like in the show, she can just be herself forever. She has to be connected mm. to those bigger things. Yeah. I mean, the other piece is like we get to see how excited Trish is by the whole superhero thing. You know, Trish mm-hmm. is like having a great time putting on a funny mask and like posing with her all her enthusiasm. Oh yeah, I love that so much. <laughs> But you would also see think that uh, Trish would be more excited because, in a way, to her, it's acting and make believe for her, and and yeah. Jessica's like just pissed off having to deal with all this stuff and is kind of over it. So I, I kind of took that dynamic away too, where Trish was like, "Hey, you could put on a mask and you could put on this costume," and Jessica's like, "No, I really don't feel like doing this. This is stupid. It's just like I don't want to do this." That's a good point. Um. And I like the yeah, way like that Trish asked she her. She wants to help, really but she... Oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. She like she wants to help people out, but she doesn't want to be, like, a big symbol. Like, she doesn't really have, like, some yep. deep philosophy. She's not, like... She doesn't have a deep philosophy between every piece of armor she carries and everything she throws costs Batman. Um, she just <laughs> wants to, like, help in little ways, which is what, like, we can do. I mean... Like, yeah, and also, I don't know, it just makes her less self-serious and more, like, someone we could actually like, meet. Hmm. I like the line that Trish has, which is, you're really going to do it? You're going to be, you're going to be a hero? Like, and, you know, that she sort of ideates it and makes it a question in that sentence. Like, it's really important to Trish, clearly, too. And then you get a jump cut to Jess with her hood up, sitting on a desk, Looking dark and sad. Oh my god! Yeah, so they use that in the trailers. I'm like, oh, Jess and her hoodie. That's right. That is in the trailers. Yeah. You're very, very isolated in that picture. Oh, one point that I did not mention earlier, but I meant to, is this is the first episode where we see Jess trying to reach Trish and Trish not picking up the phone. Like earlier in the series, Trish was like trying to get a hold of Jess and Jess wasn't responding. Yeah. Just to like really cut her out. And then 
in this part, it's like, you know, actually reaching out to her. And that's a sign of progress, actually, that Jess is trying to, like, get help from somebody. Don't you think? I mean, yeah, yeah, she's being more more proactive. And, like, she actually cares about the mission. But, I mean, mostly because it's personal. And it's, like, the one purpose she has is um, helping Hope and ending Kilgrave. But, but, yeah, it's nice to see her actually, like, motivated to do something. It doesn't involve, like, rent money or alcohol. Hmm. And then we have the scene. She is going out. They're going to go do the thing. They're going to take down Kilgrave. And there's this moment where they're walking, you know, they're walking to go get down to business. It's a very stereotypical, like, get down to business kind of a scene um, where Jess says, if Kilgrave gets me and douche cop cuts her off and says, take you out, question mark, and she says, no, I was going to say dart me, but sure, shoot me in the head. And he says, same here. And I, like, read that whole thing. as Like, she's trying to, like, be pragmatic about, like, this is what you should do if this happens, whereas he just it explains everything in terms of, like, macho posturing. You know? <laughs> it's like those people who are like, if I'm ever, like, confined to a wheelchair, you should just kill me now. Or people who are like, yeah, man, like, I want to, you know, I want to I want to die before I get old or, like, whatever. It just all sort of comes like it's like that, you know, whereas she's, like, saying, no, like, practically, like, you need to take me out of consciousness if I get controlled. I I, I don't know. I guess there's a lot of different ways you could read that scene. I'd love to hear what you guys think about that exchange. Oh, I, I love that the dialogue. Like, they're all, like, the, the snarky dialogue deaths are, like, references to, like, 80s macho versions of, like, masculinity, Rambo, G.I. Joe, and, yeah, that's what he is. I mean, he might not, like, he looks like this, I forgot he's a cop in this episode. Like, hmm. this is a wannabe action hero who wandered off the wrong set and pretty much. And, like, like you can even see that in the action choreography. Like, he's, like, Jessica's a very pragmatic fighter. I mean, was she probably because she's not a martial artist. She's just, like, throwing guys down, picking them out. He, like, has to do the, like, flips and the big punches and stuff. Hmm. And he only takes out, like, two guys. And he's, like, not even strategic at all. Like, she's getting, like, paved by, like, six guys at once, and he's just, like, too busy holding a guy in a chokehold. And, like, Jessica Jones might not have as flashy fight choreography as Daredevil, but, like, the fights are still, like, tell a story and... Um, important. In my opinion. I'd love to hear from you, Janine. Like, what do you think of the fight scene in this, or the fight scenes in about the show in general? I, I mean, I like fight scenes. Period. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was painful for me to watch her get tased by all those guys. Oh, that was excruciating. Um, but it was also interesting, you know, as someone who does not really know a lot about the character and doesn't really know, like, extent of her power and the extent of her vulnerabilities to see kind of where where the lines are, you know, that that she can be put down by by like, what was it, like five or six guys tasing her, you know? She put up a hell of a fight before that. You know what I mean? Like, obviously, it took a while to get get the best of her, but um, that that was a kind of a, a, a very revelatory moment for someone who is new to the character in terms of understanding um, where she lands in terms of uh, vulnerability, you know? 
Yeah. That's very I mean, true. Fighter, I mean, and... He, he, I mean, she reminds me a lot when, like, Superman's fighting with the Justice League and he just takes a lot of punches all the time. Like, if you ever watch the old cartoon, like, the Justice League cartoon, he just... Like, that's what Jessica Jones and I, like, she knows she can take the hits, so she takes the punches that, or the tasers that, like, would incapacitate the twist. Yeah. Like, you look at her and you think, like, you know, if Jess trained with someone who actually knew how to fight, like, if she trained with, like, Black Widow or something, she uh, would be so much more effective. But she doesn't, <laughs> like, that's not her thing. You know what I mean? So here we have somebody who has super strength, not super strength at the level of, like, the Hulk or Thor, but super strength, who's not even, like, able to actualize her super strength as well as she could because she doesn't have training. Yeah. Well, I think she also, now that I think of it, she might have been holding back a little bit because she thought that hmm. these guys were under mind were control. Controlled. Yeah. She, you know, I think there was a part of her that was kind of like, I don't want to fuck them up too bad because, you know, it's not their fault. Right, she just keeps saying, you don't want to do this. Yeah, like, you're being controlled, you idiot. You know, like, she's trying, you know, she's trying not to mess them up because she's trying to, you know, know that it's not coming from a place of, of malice. And then, you know, may, I, am I getting ahead of us by saying that we find out that they're they're not? Yeah, they're not being controlled. Yeah. I was wondering, like, yeah, what did you guys think of that reveal, that they're, like, actually hired security guys who are doing this because it's their job? I think it says more about Kilgrave than anything, that one that obviously he knew that he might need these guys, but that he doesn't use his powers, like, willy-nilly. He uses them at very hmm. specific times because he easily could have gone to some security place and be like, no, you guys are going to protect me and you're going to do it for free. Um but he's yeah. Not. So it's either a limit of his power, or he's even more like cunning and manipulative uh, in his use of them, in his use of them, than like we even were led to believe. Hmm. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I don't like, know. Also, like if he was mind control, like maybe they would be less. I don't know. I don't know if this is right. Whether he's creative in their attacks, like they would be more. They wouldn't be as good at fighting. I, I, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. Oh, I want to go really quite back to that ambush scene, though, which I thought was really well done. You know, we mm-hmm. have this moment where Jess sees that Kilgrave is, looks up. I'm, and I don't know. I don't know who. I'm not sure if she's right when she says he sees you. I don't know. I can't. I couldn't really tell. But she's saying to douche cop, like, we need to abort. He sees you. He's looking right at you, sees the gun, and douche cop is just like, I've got a clean shot, I'm taking it. And he goes and he does it, and he kills Grave. It is like a good shot he got at him. Just just a social manipulation to be able to get out of there carrying Kilgrave, carrying Kilgrave on her back was impressive. She like handled that situation mm. really well. But I love that, you know, her distraction like that she pulled. She says, hey, shit, head over here. And then everything goes in slow-mo, which the show does like almost never. And you see him looking up at her and like he bite, he bites on the distraction. She fooled him for a minute, you know? I thought it was a pretty interesting scene. Do you think yeah. the, the crowd... Good... 
the oh, crowd reaction was realistic and all that. I mean, so we'll tie into what everyone else was going to say or, you know, comment on. But, like, I, that's the one thing is, like, I would think more people in the crowd would be like, what the hell is going on? Or either start running or yelling or something of that, like, seeing that all go down. And they wouldn't be running. They'd be yelling. It's like, but also, that's that coffee shop right on Union Square, which is, like, kind of a posh, slightly touristy, like, lush, like, rich people lunch place. They have good fried calamari. Um, mark it down for your tour. We're doing this. Yeah, exactly. I mean, from experience, I know that it, there can be shit going down in New York, and it'll take people a few minutes to kind of be like, huh? What? You know what I mean? Like, a lot of people are just absorbed yeah. in their own things. Like, I have flat out... I have flat out had a moment in the city where I'm like yelling for a cop that's 10 feet away and everybody's like, what the fuck ever. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, so to me, it was kind of like, you know, it was very realistic to me that nobody would be like, Oh my God, what the, whoa, she, yelled, she called that man a shithead. You know? like, Yeah. The tension in that scene was really good. It wasn't yeah. like, it was like it was it was it was pretty damn tense. Um, yeah. And then, well, I like that it illustrated that it was it was as striking a moment for Kilgrave to see Jess as it was for her to see him. That's how it landed to me, at least. You know what I mean? Like they're obviously having different experiences. Like for her, it's like a horrible, like oh god, my abuser. Like I'm shaking. You know, like I'm seeing him for the first time. And for but for him it's kind of like oh my god the one that got away you know mm. yeah but they he both looked very shocked each other yeah they both had that moment of of shock the reveal that he's wearing a tracker I'm so sad that she didn't find it sooner um, no. what do you think about her punching him when he's knocked out any thoughts about that moment it was satisfying. <laughs> I think it was even more satisfying was the scene where he wakes. It's like the really quiet scene later where he wakes up in his whatever his nice blank house he's staying in, and he like has a tooth out, and he's like, I don't know, like he's. It showed how like he like likes the pain that he still thinks he's he's like a romantic lead. He thinks he's a hero in romantic comedy, but he's really like a villain of a yeah. psychological thriller. Wow, that's totally true. Probably for a lot of real people, too. Um, yeah, it's so messy. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think in, in my podcast about him, I said that, like, Kilgrave was what, like, pickup artists, un, like, probably aspire to, like. Yeah. Which, I mean, I even, I, I've kind of been afraid to check, like, men's right activist reactions to Jessica Jones. Well, our guest last episode, Scott Eric Kaufman, has the fortune slash misfortune of writing for Salon, so he gets a lot of hate mail, and he's definitely seen, like, a lot of, like, MRAs do, like, mm-hmm. and they're like, he's the real, like, it's just, I, can't, I don't even know what their arguments are, I can't, I can't take it, but, yeah, that that's a thing. Ugh. Um, I was reading, I think it was a cracked article today that was written uh, by someone who has been, who had been, you know, in an abusive relationship and then stalked for years afterwards. And, you know, how true to form it is for a character like Kilgrave to genuinely believe like, 
but I'm the, you know, I'm the one who's in love and like, I'm, you know, like I'm not doing anything wrong and you're blind to how much I love you. And, and that's, that's a, that rang very, very true to this person. Mm. Yeah. Our, our, our guest for, um, for the next episode is actually someone who's done a lot of work with, the, with women who are victims of domestic violence. So it's definitely a, a big thing, you know, an important, I would say probably one of the most central themes for the show. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, at the end of the fight, um, you know, Trisha's really frustrated because she wasn't able to, like, participate and really take care of herself. She got tased once and she's down, which, of course, is what happens to humans. Um, mm-hmm. You know, she's debilitating her. Yeah. She's like, one tase and I'm useless. I'm just a goddamn talk show host. And then Jess says, I can't do that thing where I make you feel better. I don't know how. And that was, like, a really strong moment, I thought. And then Douche Cop, because he has a little bit more human skills sometimes, said, hey, you did good, which was the right thing to say. Like, she doesn't really, like, she's not, like, quieted or she's not, like, you know, him saying that to Trish does not make Trish suddenly feel okay, but it was still the right thing to say, you know. But Jess is basically saying, like, she does not know how to take care of her because Jess is usually the one who needs to be taken care of. Mm. Yeah, it was like sad. Like, was, like she probably wanted to comfort her friend, but yeah, she just wasn't something she was used to doing, and uh, you know, part of the darkness of her character. Yeah, and she was probably also just focused on her own like fear that since he got away, you know. But I, I, yeah, I, I, I mean, you know, I really yeah. feel for both of them. I really feel for both of them. I mean, now I didn't think of it before, but thinking of it that you kind of mentioned, I don't remember who mentioned it, was like Kel- Kilgrave feeling pain and with the tooth knocked out and then her saying to, to Trish, like, I can't I can't do that thing and help you out. Like, there's a weird connection in that, right? Like, she can't comfort and all she can do is bring it, bring pain in this instance, um, mm-hmm. which I thought was, was kind of interesting. Um, now that I'm really thinking of it, like, there, something might be there, too. Whether or not that was not on purpose, like who knows? But I kind of find that like a really interesting comparison. Yeah, I'll buy it. I'll buy it. Well, so as one would have guessed, based on the fact that this is episode five, their plan did not work, and he got away. Um, we next have what I think is one of the definitive like moments of Jess's past, which is her trying to save Malcolm, I mean, the first time. Um, I feel like this, you know, that's the second definitive moment, really, of her past. Like, the first is, like, her saving the girl just as a sandwich, and the second is her trying to save Malcolm and then getting immediately, like, kidnapped, basically, and mind-raped by, by Kilgrave. Um, that scene, you know... Uh, it was not something I would not have foreseen. I did not predict that she was going to have had an even earlier interaction with Malcolm. As you know, it's revealed to be Malcolm at the end of that scene that who had been the victim. Definitely caught me on by surprise. It really makes you kind of wonder if Kilgrave found him after that or how Kilgrave found him after that and was able to manipulate him or if somehow Kilgrave I don't know, but, like, the fact that it's Malcolm is just, like, I'm not sure 
mm. how that could be. But I'm I'm fine with that. But I'm not sure how that could be. I mean, and I like that he brings it up with you saying paper. like you can't save my life again. You know. It really works with the story of this episode, um, and especially like Malcolm's like, especially her kind of like redemption through saving Malcolm. But yeah, I mean, it does seem contrived on paper. But I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll go with the, the, the strong character beat and over the whatever. This could actually happen. Like, I mean, yeah, it, it worked for me. Uh, when he, when he like first encounters her and he sends the other women away and he says, you know, he describes like. You know that she's beautiful and she is powerful. You know her fashion sense is appalling, but that can be worked on. So it's like all of these qualities of her that are intrinsic to her, like are the things which she's like fascinated by, and the thing about her that's like more of like an actual choice, i.e., what she wears is like that's bad and to be ignored. So I thought that was like a bit of a character moment. I mean, also, that also kind of reminds remind me of a less kind of creep. Because in the, in the comics, like, in the, they don't really reveal, like, Kilgrave's behind her, like, dark past until, like, the very last arc, which don't really like it. I mean, it, it works. It's, it's such a difference in TV and comics as medium. But, like, mm-hmm. he has, like, rapes women while Jessica watches, and then he, like, tells the women who he, he cares about Jessica the most. And that's, that, like, one scene... Kind of translated that feeling without, you know, getting really disgusting, like in the comic. Um, yeah, and also those scenes were drawn by Mark Bagley, who, like, but all like team, he's, he's like mostly known for team superheroes. That's made it even more, like, I know, yeah, it's disgusting for me. And then he's really generic. Lot. Like, Mark yeah. Bagley is just like the king of generic, you know? <laughs> I think. Whereas, like, yeah, Gator was, like, specific style that was sort of realistic and, like, not glamorized. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's why it was, it was yeah, the, I think it's just such a studying contrast. Like, oh, well, this is bad things happening in a supposedly light superhero world, like, picking badly. But, uh, but yeah, but I think the show did a lot tastefully than the comic, like, handling, uh, I don't know, Kilgrave, like, Kilgrave being a rapist. Um, kind of like the Mad Mad Max Fury Road approach. Like they don't show like a Morning Joe being a monster. They just like give us enough like through through like just imply it, not like to show it. Like not pull a game with her in season four. And, yeah. Sorry. And, you know, at the very end, he like when he tells her to come on, it's like he's calling a dog. It's like the same kind of like come on, come on. Yeah, her face is blank. Like, I mean, Kristen Ritter is a really expressive actress. Like, she's like always like when she's like being sarcastic, she does like a little like eyebrow raise, and when she's angry, she does like the furrow. Because she's like kind of dark eyebrow. I don't know, it works somehow. And but like she's like completely blank, just neutral, like chaotic, like yeah. And and it shows how horrible it is. I do think it's interesting in that scene, Kilgrave asks her, like, why she did what she did, and her whole response is just, she likes helping people. Like, that's it. Like, Mm -hmm. at this point, she's given the whole motivation of, like, what she's doing and what her drive as a hero is. Mm 
um, which we don't hear a lot from the, the other characters that are out there. And it's just a, such a simple mm-hmm. thing of, I like helping people. Um, which, you know, explains why she might have helped the kid in front of the car. She just likes helping people. Uh, mm-hmm. And how she's with her neighbors and Trish and all that stuff. Uh, I think it's just a very, it's a simple motivation, but like, it works. Like, it just really works based off of everything she's done up to this point. Mm-hmm. And then we get the scene with um, Malcolm, and he, that whole dialogue, you know, she's putting, she's putting him off drugs, you know, like whole turkey. I don't know if that honestly is safe, but whatever. Um and she's basically saying, I, I just love this monologue where she's like saying that she's still, she's basically asking Malcolm to save her by refusing to let himself be destroyed, you know? And I felt like that's a much more powerful ask than asking him to save himself mm. because he's, you know, somebody who wanted to be a social worker. He wanted to help people and he's made it clear that he doesn't think that he's worth saving. So Jess explains to him why, you know, she says, if you give up, I lose. He did this to you to get at me, to isolate me, to make me feel like an infection, one more person dead or dying because of me. So why don't you remember how to be a human being, not this piece of shit he turned you into? Why don't you save me for once? And I was like, that was really, really well done. And also like, yes, a successful argument, I thought, for like getting him to, you know, throw the drugs down the toilet like you did. Well, yeah, cause she, yeah, yeah. I mean, because she lost control when Kilgrave took over, and, and uh, Malcolm has lost control through his drugs. And but she realizes like that she can help him get control back, and that's what she's been doing with Hope and their prison visits. And or I think I don't know. Hope's a little still shape like warrior, but it's definitely a lot stronger, a stronger focus, Malcolm. But I also just think that, like, she, like, figured out, like, what it would she should say to make him, you know, take notice. And it was, you know, not about himself, but about somebody else. And he also says choice a lot. Like, Malcolm makes a lot of things saying, like, it was his choice to stalk her for the drugs. It was his choice. Like, he's really, you know, he's blaming himself a lot, which, again, I think works really well with that metaphor of, you know, people who are surviving abuse or people blame themselves a lot. At least, but we really see Malcolm try to take that on in this episode. Then we get to see Trish on a balcony loading a gun. Any thoughts? That are not spoilery thoughts? <laughs> Nothing? That's okay. It's, it's just I, a proverbial, it's a proverbial check out the gun. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. still think it's weird that she accepted the gun, but that's that's just me. I said that last episode. She's I just like think attracted bizarre. to the gun. I don't know. And the her with Simpson as a whole baffles me, but that's a uh, considering their history. Maybe they're just, going for the noir trope of the like ladies' gun kind of thing. I don't. Yeah, it's something else I'll to look at, look for in future rewatches. Um, so let's just get to the last scene because I realize we're coming up on a. Um, on an hour and 15 um, and we only have for an hour and a half I think set up but um, so he tells pulls the tooth out of his mouth uh, Colgrave pulls the tooth out of his mouth that she broke 
He seems to be having a moment about it. I was thinking back to how he insisted on taking both of that guy's kidneys when he could have just taken one. And I was worried that he was going to start stealing people's teeth. But yeah. that's a different, <laughs> a different moment. I'm in a whole um, now, going on. Logan, you pointed out a good point, which is like the very, the very purple glow of the room and, and that long Oh, room yeah. That oh, yeah. Like, which is something the show does so well. Like, like, I mean, which is so much better than, oh, well, here's the purple man. Like, it's just in the background, and every, like, when I saw the pilot, like, every time I saw the pol- color purple after seeing the pilot, it just scares me. And um, it, the director, um forget the director's name, uh, just does an excellent job of just associating fear and um, loss of control with purple throughout the series, and it's nice. Some people might think, "Oh, it's too over the top," but I'm, I, I like it. You know, it is kind of it. It is kind of a noir story, and it's kind of you know, grounded in the superhero genre as well. And those aren't the most subtle genres, so I don't I don't mind you know, purple in the background occasionally. It's cool. <laughs> I like it. Like hey, I. The, it, or I was going to say, the calling is what I really, really enjoyed about it. Because now I think it, the series kind of seems to touch on a lot of different themes and topics. And I think at this point, it almost starts diving into um, uh, stalking people through technology and like the use of technology to, to watch people and voyeurism. And it's, it, it's starting to... It, it, starts talking about that more as opposed to just the uh as a whole of of Kilgrave stalking um Jessica and and what he's done with like all these other women so I, to me it's like another aspect for something for them to explore and talk about Oh my gosh I just realized Kilgrave is like white boy of of Tumblr with his like his requests for pics Yeah yeah like, yeah like that's what stuff, it is Stuff white, white boys text or whatever yeah like yeah, it, like it, that's he just the way I, one. Yeah, that's what I took it at. It was like this is him. He's no longer just like the MRA rapist weirdo. He's also like a stand-in for all those assholes, you know, texting women saying show me your boobs or you know send me a pic like that type of stuff. Um, yeah. Which at that point the series hasn't like really talked about. So almost it's like it's taking it to that next level and making it even more relevant to like today's discussions. And topics, and I, you know, I he, I love how much Jessica refuses to give him her voice, like he's begging for her voice, and she just won't do it. And then yeah. she goes and she sees that Malcolm hasn't taken the drugs, and then she goes and sends him the photo. And I was just so heartbroken that she sent him the photo. There's also that huge. She's not smiling in it though. He wants well, her to smile. She doesn't smile. She's sort yeah. of smiling, like she's doing like that half-ass. Kind of she's like, doing the bare minimum. <laughs> yeah, like she's smiling. It's not to what he would want, but I think like the, his his con- insistence of keep on saying to her like smile for me, smile for me, smile for me. Um, I mean, there's tons of articles I've read in the last couple of weeks, and I, I don't know why there's just seems to be a whole bunch that I've been reading. Maybe I'm just paying more attention to it, where tons of women like keep on commenting of like that's comments you only hear said towards women is smile for me and oh you look prettier if you smile so the fact that he's mm-hmm. not saying it like it's it's so it's so strange that this it's is like scary and like yeah after watching it and like hearing it in it's the real nervous. world it just freaks me out like 
Oh, yeah. Oh, I managed yeah. to work set, told a female employee to smile, and I'm just like, do yeah. I work for Kilgrave? It just scared me. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like, it's I'm really. It's, I'm white it This doesn't happen, right? It's it's one of the like to me. I'm I'm white guy. Like this doesn't happen to me. It's I'm totally foreign to it. And reading all these articles and talking to women and seeing it, on, like it scares the shit out of me now. Mhm. Yeah. I mean, and I've definitely like I know from like experience of like gay guy friends of mine who've done internet dating a lot that they also get harassing messages from guys. Raise his um, hand. Yeah. So you know <laughs> what I mean? Like it's so it's like just basically like you know, I was I didn't know whether or not that would be the case or not, you know. So that was that was oh, it is. I disturbing. get like I get stuff like good morning sexy. I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> and worse. I mean it gets worse. Yeah, but, I mean, some it's guy definitely, was like, that, it's definitely like, worse for women, definitely. Mm. But it's yeah, it can be like thank goodness for spam filters. Oh God. <laughs> but yeah, that's a really good point to highlight there. But she really does like she checks to see whether Malcolm takes the drugs or not before she relents. And I was happy that she like at least like refused to like give Kilgrave her voice in that phone call. So we're wrapping up, I guess. I, I would really love to hear from either of you guys if you have other thoughts you want to share about the show as a whole. Anything that we haven't really hit on. I will say, I after binge-watching this series, a friend was like, well, now you need to go binge-watch Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment 23. Yes. Oh, and she, the same friend astutely pointed out that they are essentially the same character. One yeah, played for with Kong, some, one played for Kong. With some Jane Margolis, with, uh, I mean, also, yeah, I'm like, when Kristen Ritter was cast, like, some people were just being really, like, annoying. I mean, as they usually are with most, you know, main superhero parts. Well, like, she's perfect because, mm-hmm. I mean, she has a sarcastic comedy from Don't Trust the Beast. And she mm-hmm. has a deep darkness and addiction from Jane Margolis in Breaking yeah. Bad season two. Plus, where's the black in both shows? I'm like, this is perfect. This is like amazing. This is like J. Jonah, J. Uh, J. K. Simmons is J. Jonah Jameson, amazing. Patrick Stewart is Professor X. Like, this is off the page. Like, I'm pumped. And yeah, it, and I wasn't like too. My optimism was rewarded. I mean, yeah. Except, oh my gosh, I I had like a one dark moment about person that. Are, at uh, New York Comic Con, it was like, and in like the context of what the show means, it's kind of scary. Uh, hmm. She had one question at the like panel Q and A, and the I think it was like Jeff Loeb, <laughs> um, asked her about her male co-star David Tennant and not herself. Jeez. Was this is this is after like, where the actress who played Trish Walker, Rachel Taylor, is like. This show, yeah, the female friendship is, like, the cornerstone. And then, like, Carrie Ann Moss is, like, oh, I like passing the torch to, like, the new generation of female hero because, you know, she's Trinity in the Matrix. And, yeah. Like, all this stuff. And then, yeah, Jeff Loeb. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Instead of when, like, well, yeah, it was, it was not cool. Because, like, David Tennant wasn't there. And uh, so she, like, couldn't really 
share about like she had like sixty seconds that instead of like sharing about like her experience with the character, she had to like talk about David Tennant. Gosh. Which is really unsettling and like lighted like what the actual show is like. Mm-hmm. Good points, you guys. Definitely. Well, yeah. do we want to tell people where you can find us, where we can find you on the internet? Yes. Yeah, so Wait. We'll give you. Brad has both. a good way of doing that. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so we like giving our, our guests, you know, platform to pitch their own things. Uh, tell folks where they can find them, either websites, Twitter, like whatever you want. Totally up to you. Cool. Uh, so we'll go start with Logan and then Janine second. Great. You can find me on Twitter at Nerd, And um, you can find my writing at com and the Rainbow Hub. And if you like Jessica Jones, you want to hear me talk, like write like over 2,000 words about her every weekend, yeah, um, my investigating alias series. And yeah, it's it's a lot different than the show. But I started to talk it with the show out. I started to talk about it just a little bit more. So And you have your own yeah. podcast. Which I'm Oh yeah, I do. Me, uh, yeah, I do <laughs> Yeah, I do have a podcast called Pantheon and we it's me, uh Emma Hublois, who's the editor of Rainbow Hub and Parent Sage who um I don't know, he's kinda of like an internet like a teen, like cult comics hero kind of. And he does some writing as well. And, yeah, we, we talk about, like, the big releases each week from, like, kind of a progressive perspective. We also um, do new stuff. Like, our episodes are so weird. Like, we'll go from talking about, like, um, Marvel doing cultural appropriation with their hip-hop covers or Marvel offending queer fans. It's usually Marvel, sorry. You know, they make great TV shows. Yeah. Um, to, like, talking about Batman for two hours. And, like, last episode... We spent the last 30 minutes talking about shipping. So, yeah, I mean, tune in. We get, we get different cool guests, like on comics journalists, occasional creators. Um, so, yeah, each episode, it gets, it gets pretty crazy um, with the tangents and stuff. So, yeah, um, Pantheon, yeah. My show. Cool. Appreciate it. And Janine. Um, you can find me on Twitter at CalamityJ9 um, when I remember to use Twitter, which is not that often. Um, I also have a website at J9Flurry.com, which is kind of all business. But, uh, you know, if you <laughs> anyone wants to check that out, you can. And then on Facebook, Green Mountain Gore Society is my um, partnership with my friend Ian. We do a lot of uh, B-movie, cult movie, horror movie screening events through the summer and through October and um, just kind of celebrate those genres as well. Um, and yeah, that's about it. And oh, but, and also thanks to Brett and Alana, you can see some of the, you know, comics that I've read and reviewed on graphic policy. Yes. Yay, thank you. Uh, well, appreciate you both coming on. It was, it was great having you and, um, you know, thanks so much for joining us to talk the series. Mm, thank you. Cool. Yeah, thanks. thanks for letting me just guess about Jessica Jones. I'm just so glad that she's like a mainstream character now, and like <laughs> I don't have to like hide in my little cult room with like two other people. I'm, like it's, it's cool. I'm glad people are relating to her story as well. And yeah, we would have all lost the bet if we had to make guesses as to which characters were going to become like the big ones or be seen on screens. Which is not one I would have picked. Um. I mean, I think I, I think I read Alias just because 
I was on Wikipedia and I just read Ultimate Spider-Man about Bendis, and it was shorter than his Avengers run in Daredevil, and I'm like, Alias, this could be cool. And also, <laughs> it was, I was in like high school, and I'm like, ooh, Marvel characters swearing? <laughs> yeah, I may have started reading the series for the wrong reasons. But, you know. Wow. Yeah, never, never wrong reasons. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so thanks again. We really appreciate you joining us. Um, yeah. Thanks a ton. And we've got another show on Tuesday. Is that right? Tuesday, 9 p.m. Yes, we'll be talking about episode six. As I'm sure it's not a surprise to anybody. By the way, guys, if you like really desperately miss our comics coverage, like send me a tweet because I just I just want to know, you know. But um, but yeah, our guest Tuesday is going to be Sarah McCary, who is a young adult fiction writer who also has worked as a um, abortion uh, dweller and as a domestic violence um, counselor, and with Elle Collins, who's a great podcaster herself. Her podcast is called Into It. So those will be our two guests for Tuesday at 9 p.m. Cool. We're talking about uh, and, Yes. And you can catch us every single day at graphicpolicy.com. Of course, we're on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, all at Graphic Policy. We appreciate you, uh, your support and visiting the site. So as always, thanks for listening to the show. We'll catch you next Tuesday for a brand new episode of Jonesing for Jessica. Until next time, I'm Brett. I'm Ilana. Keep it geeky.